Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. Ravi, what's going on this week? Well, there's a lot of bad things happening in the world right now. We have obviously escalating violence in the Middle East. Uh, We had a a gas price crisis in the United States. We've had some worries about inflation. We had a little bit of confusion over CDC's mass guidance. We have crypto price plunges. I mean, you could just go on. There's just no shortage of crises for the Biden administration. And by and large, they've dug in stoically trying to solve problems. The GOP predictably has tried to seize on these events uh, and trying to paint Biden as like a modern day Jimmy Carter, saying that he's weak and that he's an agent of this chaos. And their basic framing heading into the summer seems to be that no matter what bad external events happen and no matter what Biden does, he is feeding chaos is their sort of key term. And it's up to us to fight that narrative. Jason, what should we do about this? I was thinking about this. It's a politically, or I guess from a message standpoint, it's a pretty smart play by them because there's a lot of stuff happening right now. And and that's always kind of going to be the case now that we live in this interconnected world, interconnected world. There's always going to be access to more information about bad things that are happening. In this case, whether it's violence in the Middle East or all the other things you talked about, there actually are legit like a lot of bad things happening in May of 2021. But I think about it as like there's two different approaches here. If you think about how Biden is handling it versus how it was handled, say, a year ago, you know, Biden, it kind of reminds me of that expression at NASA, which is work the problem. Like something bad happens, something malfunctions. And instead of freaking out, it's as you put it, stoically put your head down and just work the problem. And I would remind people that that's really what the Biden administration is doing. And this whole idea of feeding chaos, like there haven't been like super controversial statements by by Biden or by Vice President Harris to cause any of this controversy. There hasn't it's it's not been things that they've done. And then finally, what I would remind people of is I would just like go back one year and look at, at what things were like. So I did that. I went and I just Googled Current events, May 2020, and here's what I came up with. Murder hornets were spotted in the United States in May of 2020. There was a mass shooting in Texas. The New York City subway was shut down, and that was the first time in its history. California ordered all universities virtual for the rest of the year. A glitch left many people who signed up for their direct deposit of their stimulus with no money and no way to actually receive their stimulus. Various White House staff tested positive for COVID, including the valets for both Trump and Pence. The State Department Inspector General was fired because he was investigating the Secretary 
Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, there was a mass shooting in Louisiana. Various parts of the United States were beginning to attempt reopening, despite the fact that deaths from the coronavirus had gone over 100,000. Rodent sightings increased dramatically because restaurants were closed and rats were looking for new places to find food. President Trump cut ties with the World Health Organization because he believed they were a puppet for China. And finally, protests were beginning to erupt around the country in response to the murder of George Floyd, causing several new people to become victims of police brutality during those protests. So that's what was happening at this time a year ago. And when you compare the two, not only is it substantially less chaotic now, but the difference is Biden seems to be actually managing these. I mean, there may be chaos, but he seems to be trying to exercise control over it instead of stoking it and creating more chaos. Yeah. And I think, you know, let's pick one example here, which is the gas shortage, uh, which is something we haven't talked about yet. So why do we have a gas shortage? Uh, we have a gas shortage for two reasons. One is that there was a cyber attack on the Colonial Pipeline, which if you've looked into this, it supplies an unfathomable amount of United States gasoline on the East Coast, which is something we should maybe look into. Obviously, Biden didn't construct that pipeline, but that there was also a panic that was driven in part by the media where people were basically showing up to gas stations with plastic bags filling them up, trying to hoard gasoline, which is obviously a terrible idea. What caused this, right? So it caused it was caused by a hack, um, and then it was caused by panic. And what has Biden done about it? Well, Tucker Carlson, our friend at Fox mm-hmm. News, says that Biden, like they've gone past the point of saying it's Carter and that, he's, that Biden is weak and he's ineffective. And they're starting to ascribe malice to Biden. Tucker Carlson said that the White House approves of the gas shortage and that this is like a backdoor Green New Deal. And they tried to connect this to the Keystone XL pipeline, which just for our listeners, you're, you're going to probably hear this, that Biden shut down the pipeline. They're, they're trying to, to mix up two issues. The Keystone XL pipeline is a is an, uh, pipeline that transports crude oil from Canada to the Gulf of Mexico to be sold outside the United States. It has nothing to do with this. It, if it was open, it would have it would have no impact on the gas shortage in the United States. But you know, if Tarko Carlson is right, Biden would be doing nothing, and he would actually he'd actually be doing things to further this gas shortage as some kind of backdoor green deal. But he didn't, of course. He issued a uh, emergency declaration he uh, that allows truck drivers to drive longer and to sleep less, which sounds dangerous, but I trust them on uh, you know whatever we need to do. They issued a waiver to states that allowed them to sell dirtier gasoline. Um, they temporarily waived the Jones Act, which allows ships now from uh, outside the country to come in and, and and unload gasoline in the United States. So they're doing things. And most people who are watching this say that um, after the Memorial Day weekend, we should be back to normal or somewhere roughly back to normal. So like you said, he's been stoic, solve the problem, move on. Well, the other thing that can't be controlled, but we should note, is that the other reason gas prices are going up is because America is reopening and more people are getting in their cars and driving places and oil companies are going, oh, demand is up? Well, let's increase the price because when demand goes up, that means that people will buy gas regardless because they have stuff they want to go do, which is just another reminder as to why we should urgently uh, be working to not be so reliant upon fossil fuels because we're at the we're just at the whim of companies who go oh you really need our product right now well then it's going to cost more right now well obviously we be remiss if we didn't dive deep into the conflict that's happening in the Middle East as we speak there's just breaking news it seems like every minute it seems like right now 
Biden is urging Netanyahu to de-escalate uh, and, is, and Biden appears to be pushing hard for a ceasefire. What should Biden be doing? Is he doing it now? Look, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict continues to be tragic and in many ways intractable, right? I mean, I have friends who are Israeli who you know, are very adamant that this is uh, a matter of self-defense and a matter, you know, and, and they get very indignant when people uh, criticize Israel on this. I understand that, but I also like the other day, Israel took out a building that was that housed the Associated Press, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence for that as a military decision. I mean, not to mention innocent people, including uh, children who have been killed. It, it, it's what it's always been, which is a really, really tragic and difficult to find the right way through sort of situation. But as far as what Biden is doing, I, I think you know, the news that he was pretty firm with Netanyahu today and, and now is is publicly talking about the need for a ceasefire. I think that's about what he can do. And I think it reflects where a lot of us are. I mean, look, I'm somebody who has been to Israel. I'm Jewish. I'm not a fan of Netanyahu uh, at all. I don't mind saying. But, you know, there's internal conflict for me in a situation like this. And I think given his history with Netanyahu personally and with Israel, there's internal conflict for the president, and I think he's just where a lot of people are, which is he's just seen quite enough. Right. Yeah, and and like you, I've been out there uh, quite a few times. I went the first time I ever went was with the U.S. government back when I worked at the U.N. and and I also went to the territories. And you know, I I thought then, and I think now that first of all, there's just way too much uh, innocent life being lost on an ongoing basis. And I think anybody who doesn't start from the point like you did about just like innocent life being lost and kids, it's just tragic, right? I want a simple answer. I really do. I want to say this is the bad guy. This is the one bad guy. This is the good guy. And like there's, there are very unsympathetic people involved in this, you know, Hamas being an example, a terrorist organization that's dedicated to the destruction of Israel. And I'm not equating the two, but Netanyahu, who's just seems like he's somebody who's now been through four elections in two years and seems a bit distracted both by that and by his own corruption scandal, seems to be missing something here. He's made his politics a politics that we recognize in populists in the United States, which is to exploit a conflict to his advantage, exploit hatred to his advantage. And he's just getting sloppier and sloppier as this goes along. And you start to look at what happened over the past few months, which is a lot of avoidable things, right? Building settlements where, where there's no right to do it. And you're just, you know, removing the dignity of people. These are just moments that are avoidable. And, and if the Netanyahu administration was really focused on improving the lives of people there, they wouldn't be making these mistakes. So like my, one of my big takeaways is that it's past time for this government to be gone. It's not my country though. Uh, and so it's like hard to figure out what our role is. I'm a friend of the people of Israel. I go there um, every now and then. I feel for the people of Palestine. It breaks my heart to see kids dying. Uh, it breaks my heart to see anybody dying. But I look at this conflict and I say that we have, we have people negotiating in bad faith on both sides of this conflict. And it makes me really worried about the future. Yeah, I think our role is it is to engage in this in a way that isn't divisive within America. And here's what I mean by that. Like, obviously, it's going to be divisive when people are being killed and, and people are passionate uh, on both sides. I can just speak from my own experience, like as a Jew who's been in politics, there is a tendency 
particularly, you know, by other Jews, by folks on the J Street side or the APAC side and, you know, the various sides of this argument in American politics to whatever your position on an Israeli policy to somehow make that a litmus test of like whether you're a good Jew. It's interesting because I think for like possibly for other faiths, it's things like how observant are you? Um, but for us, it seems to be like, where are you on Israel? And it's not like right. there's one way, like you could be like support Israel no matter what it does. And there's a group of people who think, well, so you're a good Jew. And there's another group that's like the opposite. And then you flip the whole equation. It's the same thing. So that was always very frustrating to me. And I guess for me, I, I just kind of think of this as like, look, I'm, I'm a Jew and I do support Israel, but just like I'm an American and I love my country and I support my country, that doesn't mean like I had to like what Donald Trump was doing. There are going to be things that Netanyahu does where I'm, I'm not, I'm not a Jew who's like Israel is my country. Like I'm an American and I'm a Jew also. My point is this thing where every time somebody criticizes a policy by Israel, there are Jews who want to call them anti-Semites. And then every time that there are Jews who defend Israel, then there are people who want to say that uh, they're anti-Muslim. Like we got to be able to have a conversation about this in this country without constantly assigning horrible motives to each other. Yeah, I totally agree. I think of it like I do Modi in India, for example, which is somebody who there's just a whole lot I disagree with about the way he goes about his business. And I feel a need sometimes as an Indian American to speak out against it. But then again, you know, like every week we have just an insane amount of stuff going on within our boundaries here in the United States. Uh, and so it becomes hard to think about what our role is. And obviously, we have a special relationship with Israel. And, you know, where I come out is I worked at the UN, where I saw one day after another countries with terrible human rights abuses, just all they wanted to do was talk about Israel. And that changed me. I probably came in to that experience fairly critical of the state of Israel compared to where I am today. And then I saw this just psychology at work, which seemed to me not very genuine. And it seemed to be a weird obsession. So I came out way more sympathetic to the country's existence as a whole and to a lot of the people I've worked with there, you know, I wouldn't want somebody to be pro-American and that means they support Trump, you know, like right. Netanyahu is their, their leader of their country. He is not their country. And the fact that they've had four elections in two years shows that there, there's a huge divide in that country about its future. And to the extent I'm asked or that a moment like this comes up where it's appropriate to weigh in, I believe in that country. I believe in its people. Uh, and I also seriously hope that they make a change of direction in leadership because what they're doing is counterintuitive. Yesterday, I was in a meeting at work and I was talking through a problem and somebody made the joke that, wow, you just had a whole conversation with yourself and like disagreed with yourself three times and then figured this out. And I responded and everyone laughed. I responded, yeah, my therapist would agree that that's how I do things. Uh, my point is, Sometimes you just need to work stuff out loud and therapy is a great place to do that. And so that brings us to our sponsor, BetterHelp. Like it's important to have somebody there with you while you work stuff out. And oftentimes they can guide you and help you. Uh, and BetterHelp is a place for you to do that. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You connect in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient. You can start communicating in under 48 hours you send a message to your counselor anytime, and you'll get timely and thoughtful responses 
Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in a comfortable waiting room. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com M54. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash M54. Well, Jason, the Supreme Court announced on Monday that it would hear a case concerning a Mississippi law that prohibits abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy with narrow exceptions. And lower courts have struck down this law, saying it's unconstitutional because it applies weeks before a fetus is viable. But um, the Supreme Court taking up this case seems like it's notable. Should we be concerned? Uh, yes. First of all, I think people should go back and if they haven't, should listen to the abortion episode that we did, like, I don't know, a couple months ago, um, because we really dove deep into this. Uh, and I think had a, a great discussion, particularly toward the end, we had a discussion about cases like this one and the direction of this. But yeah, I'm concerned about it. The fact that they took the case is a pretty big deal. And this law, the 15 weeks of pregnancy law, I mean, it is functionally just a law that outlaws abortion because it's it's well before you know it's well before the the 22 weeks or whatever it is that they typically say is is viability so yeah and when you think about what that is like there are a lot of people it's not uncommon for somebody to be 12 to 15 weeks pregnant and not not fully know it yet so it's a huge deal and i i do think it's really concerning yeah and i think this comes at a time where there's a lot of anxiety uh on the left about Justice Breyer and whether he will retire at the end of this term. And, you know, as backdrop, if he doesn't retire at, this end, at the end of this term, the next most likely time he would retire is at the end of next term, which would still conceivably be before the midterm elections and before Republicans would be able to block us filling that seat. But there are all sorts of things that could happen between now and then. Um, that could eliminate our ability to do so. Jason, I know that we generally preach control what you can control. So I know that's answer number one. We can't control any of this really. But do you, like, what are your thoughts on this? Should Breyer retire? You know, like this is more like a parlor discussion than a useful conversation for people around their dinner tables. But what's your opinion about what he should do? Yeah, 100%. I mean, like, it's like to me, it's like no question, man. I mean, it's, there's 50 votes in the Senate. Like the stuff that you're there and and you're there to protect and the right. I mean, like, yeah, short discussion, right? I mean, don't you agree? 100% agree. 100% agree. And this is a lifetime position. You know, like you're not a king. And and his comments, like he made some public comments recently about, you know, he's just, just so disappointed in how people want to politicize the court. And I'm like, Briar, where have you been, man? I was in high school when Bush versus Gore happened. This court has been politicized for a long, long time. And if he doesn't retire, this would be another example of Democrats unilaterally disarming, you know, like Manchin, mm -hmm. you know, saying he wants to to wield bipartisanship and, and Breyer saying he wants, he doesn't want to lean into partisanship on the court. We have one side that just has no problem being as partisan as they possibly could be. And then we have our side pretending like there's a whole different game being played. And I really hope that I'm misreading the tea leaves here and I hope he retires at the end of this term. And this week in misinformation, Jason, we're going to tackle this question of unemployment benefits. And 
right now, at least 20 Republican-led states are terminating federal unemployment aid programs uh, starting in June in an effort to force more people back to work. Texas became the largest one yet on Monday. And, you know, of course, you know, we, we talk about Kevin McCarthy every week, House Minority Leader. This is what he had to say. He said, our local job creators should not have to compete with the federal government for workers. This is a uh, narrative that has been months in the making. Um, GOP is arguing that businesses are unable to hire people because of these enhanced unemployment benefits and saying that they're too generous. And right-wing outlets like Fox News have been providing air cover on that. I know that a lot of our listeners are hearing this argument in their communities. Here's one of our listeners who sent in a voicemail. Hi, Majority 54. I am uh, living in the great state of Missouri, in the middle of mid-Missouri, um, in Jefferson City, as a matter of fact. So I have heard, both from my mother and overheard in the grocery store and over online, um, all sorts of things about people just don't want to work anymore. And why should they want to work? Because, you know, being on unemployment is so good and they're making so much money. So, you know, not that I'm picking fights in the grocery store, but I did talk to my mother and say, you know, I think that's a really simple solution to a really complicated problem. And we didn't really go much further than that, but we hear that all over lately. And, you know, restaurants posting signs about how they can't get staff and, and all that stuff. And again, I think it's a visible blame, you know, to a really complicated problem, you know, of wait staff didn't have jobs for a year. So yeah, they would have, I would too, if I was making $2 and 30 cents an hour in tips, you know? So this is just my rant, but this is the most recent thing that I am dealing with in the great red state of Missouri, being a tiny, tiny blue dot. Thanks guys. I love your podcast every week. I look forward to it coming out and it makes me feel just a bit more sane. Thank you. Well, first of all, I thought Jen Psaki had a great response to this. She talked about the other drivers at play here. She talked about the fact that people are having trouble getting childcare and paying for childcare. Uh, and also that a lot of people who are not yet fully vaccinated are concerned about going back to work, that these are all big drivers as well. But at the same time, I don't want to fully dismiss this. Um, I was at a, at a restaurant uh, yesterday um, here in in Kansas City. Uh, it's a restaurant that I you know I, I know the owners well. I've been going there for a lot of years. In fact, the owner of the restaurant was there. He's a actually a big local Democrat and has always been a supporter of mine and a friend. And he mentioned to me that like it's really hard to find people to come in and work right now. So it's I, I don't want to act like this is just some complete and total myth. Um, now I. He didn't say, you know, it's because of the unemployment benefits or anything like that. But the other thing I noticed when I was sitting in there is that, you know, the restaurant, I mean, it was lunch hour and it, and this is a pretty popular place. Uh, and it was like maybe, I don't know, 20% full of, of patrons, which is to say, to go back to our, our caller's point, if, if you're getting a couple of bucks in pay plus tips and there's hardly anybody in the restaurant... Well, it is pretty hard to come back into work. And and so, yeah, I, I would assume that we are in a moment where this affects the service industry more than anywhere else. But also as people go back and start eating out and doing that kind of thing more, that's going to wane. But I would also point out that if you can make the argument to what extent this is truly a major driver of this, I doubt and we don't really know. But if it is a driver at all, if, if receiving enhanced unemployment insurance is 
keeping people out of the workforce. Well, then people aren't being paid enough to do jobs. <laughs> like that is an enormous tell, right? Like if unemployment insurance can be beefed up a little and then it in any way disincentivizes anybody, if you buy that argument, well, then people don't get paid enough and the benefits aren't good enough in America, period. Yep. Yeah, I agree. And I agree with you that we should take it seriously. I think that's the first step. I think that there, there's this instinct to just be like, no, this is not driving uh, the more generous unemployment benefits aren't driving uh, vacancies in jobs. Like I looked at this for this podcast and there is no consensus from economists on what's going on right now. Part of the reason is we just don't have enough data yet. The most interesting study I could find on this, and I know that listeners, you're not going to be trading Ivy League studies around the table, but I just, I think it's important just to try to figure out what's actually going on before we, we try to figure out how do we talk about it? Uh, there was a study from 2013, which looked back at the Great Recession, where in the Great Recession, we extended unemployment benefits from 26 weeks to 99 weeks. And Princeton and the Federal Reserve came together for a study that showed that people's time unemployed increased 7% because of the generosity of those benefits. So for me, that's like 7% is, is negligible. And I don't think it's the end of the world, like you're saying, if it if it, if we were to find out that unemployment benefits were driving some vacancies, that you know, we've talked about this before. You can't tailor these programs perfect perfectly. And I'd I'd rather have people secure, you know, we shouldn't be outrageous with it so that there is no employment at all. Uh, but um, I'm not a believer in that. But if we're erring on the side of being more generous to take care of people, to provide that kind of security. And one of the downsides of that is that there's 7% more vacancies or 14% more vacancies for a short period of time. That to me is not a tragedy. That is a, uh, an, a consequence of just trying to help people. And like you said, if, if one of the things that happens and there's mild evidence that over the past three months, wages have increased a little bit, uh, if there's if there if this is prompting businesses to be more generous with their people in ways that the businesses can can sustain, then that could be an improvement, right? But I don't want to jump to that conclusion. Like it, it's possible that we look back on this and say, "Hey, we learned some things," and I think that humility could actually carry us a long way. I think dismissing people's concerns could be one of the worst things that we do here. Yeah, I totally agree, and and I think we should use this moment to pivot into the basic injustices of this economy that should be addressed in the long run. I mean, one of which Jinsaki mentioned childcare. Well, yeah, like most people, ourselves included, had to change their childcare arrangements during COVID because all of a sudden you couldn't have somebody coming into the house or you, you probably couldn't take your kid to that daycare for some period of time. Well, now people are having to start over and anybody listening to this who has ever had to find a nanny or a daycare knows that it is a nightmare. And that the second your nanny just tells you, uh, or, or your babysitter or, you know, your, your daycare closes or your nanny or your babysitter says, Hey, uh, I'm going off to school or I'm going to become a nurse or I'm leaving or I'm going, you panic because like, what are you going to do? Cause you got a job to go do. And there's like the whole country is like coming back into, I got to find a new childcare arrangement right now. So I think she's got to be completely right. And, and my point is in the meantime, I believe in the last few weeks, Biden has announced that he wants to do, you know, a universal pre-K. Boy, like we could marry those two things together and say, yeah, there's a lot of people who can't afford to go back into work right now because they don't have childcare. Oh, and by the way, the administration is talking about making sure more people have childcare. Maybe these two things are linked. And in the long term, you know, we should think about it that way. 
Our sponsor, ExpressVPN, is the solution to a problem that I know a lot of people in Kansas City and in other towns across the country are facing. It's been a huge controversy this year that there's a change in the cable provider for where you watch the Royals, and I know that this is happening in a lot of other towns. If your team that you want to watch it's blacked out for you and you're not able to watch it on your cable provider, this ExpressVPN is the way around it. You put it on your device and it basically says to your internet, like, oh, I'm actually in New York. Oh, I'm actually in wherever you're not. So that then you're able to then tap into like the MLB at Bad app or whatever it is where you would watch a live sporting event. So this is the way around these blackouts and this huge outrage that's going on among sports fans. You know, another great thing about ExpressVPN is that it prevents a lot of these big tech companies from hoarding and selling your data. When you run ExpressVPN on your device, the software hides your IP address, and ExpressVPN does all of this without slowing your connection. Visit expressvpn.com slash majority54. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash majority54. So you get three extra months free. Go to expressvpn.com slash majority54 right now to learn more. I am in my second week out here in Barbados and I've been surfing a ton. And I, I didn't make the same mistake I made last time I left the country. I brought more than enough athletic greens. And I feel great knowing that I just have that you know nutritional assurance with me every single day while I'm out here. My son at this point just calls it dad's drink. That's what he calls it. This is like, hey, dad. When you're done with your drink, will you make my breakfast? I'm like, yep, 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 I will. Uh, so look, with so many stressors in life, it's difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients that they need to thrive. And that's where Athletic Greens can help. Their daily all-in-one superfood powder is your nutritional essential. It is by far the easiest and most delicious nutritional habit that you can add to your health routine today. They simplify the logistics of getting optimal nutrition on a daily basis by giving you one thing with all the best things. Right now, Athletic Greens is doubling down and supporting your immune system. They're offering our audience free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. If you visit our link today, you'll basically never have to buy vitamin D again. You simply visit athleticgreens.com majority and join health experts, athletes, and health-conscious go-getters around the world who make a daily commitment to their health every day. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash majority and get your free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs today. Well, I have some awards. I'm going to call this one the the Mike DeWine Innovation Award. uh, And this is to uh, the governor of Ohio who uh, instituted a lottery system where they gave away, I think it was a million dollars. And they basically, your ticket to this lottery was getting your vaccine. I thought that was really smart. And I think it led to a, a pretty sizable increase in vaccinations. And I think it's good to see at least some members of the GOP trying to think innovatively about trying to get their segment of the population, which is obviously dramatic, like considerably under vaccinated, trying to find innovative ways to get those folks uh, vaccinated. So it is a million dollars a week for a few weeks. And also they're doing a, I think a full scholarship to a a public university, I believe for, you know, like a a 12 to 18 year old uh, each week. So it's like one, one full scholarship plus a million dollars and they're, and I, and they're doing it uh, out of the stimulus funds. And actually they've received bipartisan criticism for this. Like 
People on both sides of the aisle are understandably saying, hey, this should be used on jobs. It should be used on stimulus. It should be used on caring for COVID. And DeWine's response has been, look, we've used a ton of money on all of those things. And and none of it has caused more people to get vaccinated who are hesitant. So, like, I don't know if long term this will work. But, like, you know what? Props for, like, trying something different, right? Um, 100%. 100%. I don't know. It's thinking outside the box and and it's not like it's permanent. Like they're trying it for a little bit. I, I almost laughed when I read about this because it almost was a magnet for the people who pissed me off the most in politics, both on both sides of the aisle. Like like it was a magnet for the anti-vaxxers. And I was like, this is and then there was a magnet for people who were just against anything. Like and they're yeah, like yeah. there's like people on the left who couldn't conceive of a Republican doing something they would agree with when even this is somebody who's trying to solve this problem. Uh, and like like you said, like this is a drop in the bucket in the grand scheme of things. And, and hopefully it yields some good results. We have another award to give out, Jason, this week. Uh, it's a it's an award that uh, I think we christened last week. We're calling it the J.D. Vance Playing the Part Award. And I want to give it to Josh Mandel, who gave a speech and this is there's nothing really new here, but I, I just know you love Josh Mandel and love talking about him. And I think if I remember correctly, you, you two have a little bit of a history. This is the mm-hmm. former state treasurer of Ohio. So we're going to stick with Ohio. And, you know, he was giving a speech revving up a, a crowd of Republicans saying, you know, let me be clear. This election was stolen from Donald Trump. My squishy establishment opponents in this race won't say those words, but I will. And, you know, the reason why we're calling this, we're giving him a J.D. Vance Award is because, as as you've pointed out in previous podcasts, this is a guy who was not too long ago running around highlighting his moderate chops and trying to position himself as a moderate when he thought that's what the world was looking for. But now he is trying to play up his Trumpianness uh, and saying that the election was stolen. And so he's, he's definitely playing the part. What I love about this is, correct me if I'm wrong, aren't he and J.D. Vance on a collision course in the Republican primary in the same race in Ohio right now? I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that. Uh, amazing. Yeah. I think I mean, they are, certainly right? certainly auditioning. Yeah. 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 They, so, so we have two clowns who are both trying to out-conservative each other, neither of which are conservative. They're like... These two fools are out there pretending. I mean, it's like, and also what he said, you know, like this election was stolen in my establishment. Like he knows that's not true. I mean, he may as well be up there being like, let me be clear. Brussels sprouts are made of chocolate and my establishment squishy opponents, you know, and then like, I don't know what Vance is going to do to top it. He's going to have to go out there and be like, look, gravity is an untested theory and then throw himself off a four story building or something. I, I don't like it's this race to the bottom by two really pretty well-educated people who know what they're saying is crap, but are working really hard to try to convince people that they don't know that is like hilarious and super tragic. And I'm sure very disappointing to both sets of parents. I think this is a good segue into our quarantine corner, or I think what we want to call it from now on. Um, what do we want to call it, Jason? Uh, aren't we oh, relatable oh. corner? As this like, is Yes, aren't yeah. we relatable, I, I think. I mean, because we should first celebrate that we finally are comfortable renaming this and, and getting rid of the quarantine part. And second, I think we should celebrate fully embracing the fact that not everything we say at this portion of the show 
is relatable at all. I don't know. You you could weigh in on that yeah, from Barbados. For sure. Yeah. Well, I want to I want to shout out our our producer. You know, we have two great producers, Edie and Grace. And, and Grace in particular has been very wise to cut out some of the less relatable things that we've said over time. Uh, you know, my trips to Costa Rica or whatever. Uh, there's been a lot of content listeners that she has deprived you of, uh, with good reason. <laughs> but I think in you the have end, a lot of courage realized, saying that while, while Edie is the one producing this week. But over time, what we've realized is that you know what you're getting from us. A lot of you follow us on social media. You know that we're not really we're not playing a part. Like if we're having a good time, we're having a good time. And if we're struggling, we're struggling. And life is short, so celebrate the moments when you're having a good time, right? And so. We're going to just lean into it from now on. And so if there's good stuff happening, whether it's relatable or not, look, we'll talk about it. Uh, but actually, what I have today is like totally relatable because it's a movie that anybody could watch. Uh, and the Josh Mandel stuff think, made me think of it, which is a movie called Death of Stalin. Uh, I think it came out a few years ago. And I just recommend it because it's basically about the cadre of advisors around Stalin um, as Stalin died and just about how they were playing the part. And it's not hard to see the relationship between that and what's been happening in the GOP, where you have these people who are just kind of groveling sycophants who don't quite know how to handle each other. Almost like, you know, the Josh Mandel, uh, J.D. Vance thing made me think about it, which is that once you don't have this gravitational force anymore around in Stalin, these people start to turn on each other and are kind of auditioning with each other. But they're not quite sure what the rules are anymore. And so they're constantly shifting. And they, and because they've been operating under the shadow of Stalin for so long, they don't have their own moral center or moral gravity. So uh, it's just very funny, but also very smart and unfortunately a little bit familiar to the world that we're living in right now. So I can't recommend it enough. And I think it's on one of the streaming platforms, whether it's like Netflix or Amazon or whatever. Uh, that is a very good one. Mine this week, I don't think I've said this yet, is there are these two streaming shows on Disney Plus. This is, again, I do the like for people who have kids that are just really great. One is the the new The Mighty Ducks show, Game Changers, which it's it's Emilio Estevez and it, it's, the, it's the latest in the whole Mighty Ducks thing. And it is so great. Like we watch it with True, it comes out on Fridays and it's got him like running around, you know, playing hockey in the front yard. We actually had some people here locally who saw it on Instagram and like gave him a couple of hockey sticks because he was using a putter on on his rollerblades out there. Uh, so I appreciate that. And then the other one is a, a John Stamos show called Big Shot, where he's like this college coach who has to go and uh, he like throws a chair and it hits a ref. And so he's banished from college and he has to start over uh, coaching like girls prep school basketball in like outside of San Diego. And the show's getting like a little soap opera-y now and like True's interest is waning a little bit. And, and so it's <laughs> interesting, but it's really quite good. And uh, so anyway, though, they both come out on Fridays. Those two like family shows are in the category that for me is like the test for a family show, which is if True goes to bed and we haven't watched the latest episode yet, are Diana and I tempted to watch it without him and not tell him, which we haven't done, but the answer is yes, we're tempted, so. For Grabbing Ore, actually, we have another voicemail that I think fits in right here. So, Edie, go ahead. Hi, Jason and Ravi. My name is Sarah, and I'm a newbie to your podcast within the last year. Wishing I were a listener sooner. Your podcast is a breath of fresh air, especially after living in Jefferson City, Missouri for seven years. I'm sure Jason will understand. 
Uh, we finally moved to Colorado last year, but I still struggle with a lot of anger from what I experienced there. I'm very much a liberal, um, but I grew up in a super conservative family, and my parents, without regret, voted for Trump. So I deal almost daily with a lot of feelings um, of complicated anger and sadness surrounding all of that, too. Um, so I just wanted to reach out and let you know that your podcast has been uh, wonderful, and I truly feel like I'm a part of a community of like-minded individuals probably going through similar experiences I am. Um, if you have any words of wisdom on um, how to deal with these feelings, that would be great. I am going through therapy, but um, I'm sure hearing suggestions from people going through the same thing I am will be wonderful. So anything you can tell me to help me through this would be great. Anyways, thanks again, and I hope that both of you stay well. Thank you, Sarah, uh, for this voicemail. And, you know, first of all, I don't think there's been another week where Jefferson City, Missouri has gotten two shout outs in voicemails. So to borrow from another uh, podcast, possibly Apex Mountain for Jefferson City, Missouri. Uh, <laughs> but what I what I will say is uh, the reason I wanted to make this grab an oar is because I think it's really important for all of us to remember that, you know, this show was founded around the idea of like, we are the majority of people. So, and, and so many of our listeners live in places and, and have families where they don't feel like the majority and it can feel very, very lonely. And to me, the grab and oar is find somebody else like that in your life because it will be good for you, but it will also be good for them. You know, maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's one of the yards in your neighborhood that actually had a Biden sign. Maybe go meet that person because I bet they're feeling the same way. This show is called Majority 54. Some people may not even remember because we started this in 2017 and 54% of the country in 2016 had voted for somebody not named Donald Trump. And it was a way of reminding everyone, actually, we're the majority. And now, like, we're also the governing majority. Like, we have the White House, we have the House, we have the Senate, and we won the election. And still, there are an awful lot of people. Like, there's a stadium size amount of people every week listening to this show from red states who all feel like they're by themselves. So what I would say to you is go find there are like minded people in your community, no matter how rural, no matter how conservative it is, and make sure that they don't feel alone because that will make you feel less alone and it will make you feel useful uh, to them because you will be. Well, amen to that. So we use two great voicemails this week. Uh, maybe next week we're going to use yours. 508-687-2589, 508-687-2589. I would emphasize it, it, it can be, hey, I'm having trouble addressing this with somebody in my life, but it can also be, hey, you said this thing and I don't agree with what you said, or you said this thing and this really helped me. Whatever it is, whatever has moved you, maybe maybe you are, you are irritated that Ravi is not at all relatable. Like, I get it. Like, let us know, vent. I think we would enjoy that conversation. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. And our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varva Lucas 
dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.